It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here with the usual great security news, and we're going to answer some questions. And he's come up with a way. I don't think anybody's ever mentioned this. In fact, I think it's a complete and utter scoop and a breakthrough to improve beyond question the fingerprint reading on the iPhone 5S. Stay tuned. He's a wizard. He's a genius. Steve Gibson, Security Now, coming up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 440, recorded January 28th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 182. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 50% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the offer code SN50. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, your privacy, your online stuff. With this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Tiberius Rumpelstiltskin Gibson. Because... Yo. Because he's the man. Steve, well, uh, you know, I was just reading, it's so funny, I was just reading, um, I think it was on Google+. Plus. And, of course, everybody's talking about this port uh, 32647, you know, stuff. And uh, somebody, um, I can't remember who it was, somebody we all know, said, I completely forgot about Shields Up and put a link on there to the Shields Up. I guess you, somebody mentioned you in an article about testing that port. So you're, you're famous, Steve. Well, and if you just Google that that integer now, I'm the first link that comes uh, You up. own 327. Yeah, that's my port, baby. <laughs> that's great. Um, we're going to do something a little uh, off color today. Well... We've we did skip a bunch of Q and A's toward the end of 2013. There was just either we were overrun with news, or there were you know specific things we wanted to talk about, and so you know we were missing them. And then when I did the, I archived all my email and um, and I found out that I had 53,000 pieces of Security oh, Now mail. I thought, wow. Yeah, well, let's answer a few more of those. And we didn't we didn't have there was nothing that was really grabbing me. Um, we actually the last question in today's Q and A is a teaser for next week's show topic. So we do have a, a show topic for next week, um, and I actually have a couple backed up, but just need to you know be able to pull them all together. So that, 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 we have a lot. We have an interesting grab bag of news. I have a a. I just can't believe they did this <laughs> nightmare to to get into technically with bluetooth low energy uh oh no that, tell me oh no don't tell me oh, yeah well. mm. yeah and i so, presume that you want to talk about that new slide that surfaced yesterday the uh yep, yep. we got to talk about the, well i don't have there i don't don't have much to say but you know even that is 
is we'll definitely touch on it. So we've got more news on the point of sale malware. Oh. Uh, I promised everybody in in Twitter that I would share how I managed to make Apple's Touch ID reliable, and I apparently have. It's just I don't. I no longer have Touch Fade, and there's a trick for that that I will share. Uh, Crypto Locker, it turns out, far from dead. There's new versions of that. Um, of course, we have the never-ending NSA news machine, uh, this Bluetooth nightmare that I uh, alluded to. And uh, I found a couple of interesting, actually one very interesting for, for our listeners, uh, new security sites. So lots of fun stuff to talk about. I'll tell you what, let's do an ad before we uh, we launch into it. That way we won't get too far behind. Uh, this is a, 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 a appropriate ad for people who watch this show. I know a lot of you are IT professionals, and perhaps you uh, are looking to get those certs or you want to work in the IT business. IT Pro TV is something you ought to know about. I love the idea. This is a couple of guys who've been doing this kind of training uh, for some time, but they that they watch you know this show security now for they were here for a security now not so long ago they watched uh, the screensavers and tech tv back in the day and it suddenly hit them you know why aren't we why aren't we teaching as if it, you're watching the security now or, or or the screensavers so they've created this it pro tv they have a roku app you can watch on your computer they stream live not all the time but just like us sometimes and they have you know, pre-recorded shows on those days where they're not live. When they are live, they've got a great chat room going on, and you can ask questions directly of them. Oh, yeah, they're live, right? Oh, no, previously recorded. It looks like I recognize a terminal command session going here. And the standby is, that Tim doing that? is 192.168.0.2. It's up. It's happy. We've now got a backup. Here's a way to learn that's fun, that's entertaining, that's easy. We now have this shared IP between these two routers. And it's very affordable. I want you to check out IT Pro TV. You go to itpro.tv slash security now, and we've got a special deal for you. Take a look at the episode library. You see they have episodes preparing you for all the major, excuse me, certs, including CompTIA, Microsoft, Cisco, and more. Um, they, there's a lot of information on the site, so go visit it, itpro.tv slash security now. If you decide it's for you, normally it's 57 It's still very affordable, $57 a month. You buy an annual plan, it's uh, $570. But if you uh, if you decide, hey, I think this is something I'd, I'd like to do, I invite you to use our offer code SN50, and that'll give you 50% off forever for the life of your account which is is pretty good. That means 2850 a month, $285 for a year. That's less than a single prep book for your A+ plus or your net plus or your security plus. Uh, they've got MCSA and uh, the Cisco certs too. itpro.tv/security now. They are great teachers. They have a setup very similar to ours. In fact, if you see the set, it looks a lot like ours. They're using the same gear, the TriCasters, the Heil PR40s, the works. itpro TV slash security now and use SN50 to uh, take 50% off for the life of your account. I like their slogan, learn without even knowing it, as in IT. That's clever. I like it. Yeah. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte, let's begin. So let's launch. We, um, we, 
sort of from the ether, we got the sense that there were going to be more point of sale breaches in the future. That is, we know for sure now that that's how Target got themselves compromised. Um, Neiman Marcus has since confirmed that they have also been a victim of infective point, infected point of, of sale terminals. And then um, just a couple of days ago, Brian Krebs reported what initially started out to be a rumor that he that 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 the the chain Michaels, which is an arts and framing chain, big chain, I guess, sort of in the southeast, eleven hundred branch chain. No, that, we have one here. They're all over. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That they appeared to be. You know, we have Aaron Brothers is the one that I think of. Same I guess, company. You know, yeah, arts. they oh, own okay. Aaron Brothers too. Yeah, and they oh, were okay. both breached. Well, yes, and so they've now confirmed it. Before Brian could get confirmation, he said that multiple sources in the banking industry say they're tracking a pattern of fraud on cards that were all recently used at Irving, Texas-based Michael's stores. Um, and, he, and Brian writes, an arts and crafts retailer that has more than 1,100 stores in the United States and Canada. On Friday, Krebs on Security heard from a fraud analyst at a large credit card processor that was seeing fraud on hundreds of cards over the previous two days that had all recently been used at Michael's. The fraudulent purchases on those cards, the source said, took place at the usual big box stores like Best Buy and Target. So there's another one. And for some reason, the number eight is stuck in my head. I think there was like, you know, there have been, there's some reason to believe we're going to have more of these. That is essentially the, the the underlying configuration of these point of sale terminals are Windows XP embedded, and this malware that was created is essentially <laughs> it's it's chain agnostic. Wow. It will happily infect anyone's point of sale terminal that's written on Windows XP embedded. So. Um, I, I sure hope that you know any other any other similar com- companies that are using this technology that may not yet be victims take this seriously because this is clearly something you could preempt if you realized oh wait you know those are our we were using the same point of sale terminals that Target is uh, how's our security so. Uh, and, you we'll know, a, a tip of the hat to Brian Krebs, because we we were all worried when he left the Washington Post. Um, yep. And, and he you know, he said, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do my own Krebs on security blog. And he has been breaking these stories. He's been knocking out of the park uh, yeah. all on his own. And good for him. Yeah. Really, he's doing a great job. Nice job. So, okay. Um, Apple's Touch ID. We've Many people have experienced sort of what's described or feels like a fade of the recognition of their thumb or finger or whatever. And there have been a number of suggestions for fixing that. For example, and and I had suggested that you could, there are, there are, I think it's maybe five slots that Apple makes available where you can register fingers. And I said, well, rather, rather than registering different fingers, how about registering the same finger in different slots? Therefore, essentially giving it more opportunity to find a match. Well, it turns out that there is a way to 
what I call overtrain, to overtrain the recognizer. And through, a, so through, through some experimenting, it's possible to demonstrate to yourself that the overtraining is actually happening. And what I think will end up being understood at some point after we sort of collectively get more experience with this is that there was the typical trade-off made between user convenience and and recognition percentage, meaning that during the typical training, they would probably have loved to have three times more fingerprints. But this was brand new. No other phone had this technology. This was Apple's first. And I'm sure that the UI guys said, well, you know, the, if we got more fingerprints we'd get a better sample. We'd be able to eliminate noise by, by, by comparing multiple reads. Um, you know, I mean, we could just do a, a much better sample if we got more. But, you know, the, 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 the human factors guy said, oh, well, you know, we just can't ask people to sit there pressing that button all morning. That, that you know, we can't. So someone made, you know, a decision. Well, okay, we'll take this many samples and I'm sure they tried it and it seemed good enough. Well, apparently for some people, that's not good enough. So here's how you can just, you can give your phone as much of a sample size as you want. You, you, it will never give up on you. It will never get tired of accepting additional fingerprint data. And what I've learned is it absolutely goes far out the curve in terms of recognition. I now never get a miss. So you just go, you open the settings app, the standard little wacky looking gear thing, you know, settings, then go under general and then touch ID and passcode is the next level. And then in there you go into, well, I think when you do touch ID and passcode, it requires you to enter your passcode at that point to get into the touch ID section. So then go into touch ID. At the bottom of that screen is a list of the registered fingerprints, and it is training there so that if you give it a fingerprint like the thumb that you normally use, you will see that item, it, it actually, well, it, it highlights by going dark briefly and then coming back. It also was a training event. You can verify oh, that it is that's interesting. Trained. It's taking more readings just within yes. that spot. Yes. Huh. Yes. And it never gets tired of doing so. Now, how do you verify that, that it is actually adding a reading? The way you can verify is you can, you can do something that it won't read. Like you say you give it way too far out at the end of your thumb mm -hmm. where it hasn't been trained. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice like, and like, 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 like. Do something like that where it won't recognize it and, and convince yourself it doesn't know the end of your thumb. Then back to go back to the trained area and in multiple trainings, slowly move forward so that you're ex essentially expanding the recognized area of your thumb surface. And you can walk it right back out to the same area that it used to not recognize, and now it will. Interesting. So, they yeah, don't. So they you, don't tell people this. 
No, none of this is documented. I was how just interesting. Mess, so you're not around. in the train. You're not actually training. It's in the screen before you say, "Let's go, let's train," and it's Correct. keeping tra- and it's actually doing training. Yes, they must have put that there on purpose. Yes. Well, they see they would like yeah. more samples, right? But someone someone said, "No, no, no. We can't. You know, only ask them for ten. Otherwise, it, you know, it's just going to seem like it's too much. It's broken. It does. In yeah, fact, it's much. annoying. It takes a while to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But now, so so here, what they're doing is they're just sort of sneaking some more samples from you. They're just sort of like you know, you put your finger on it, and it says, "Oh, yeah, that's the one." Like, and, and I assume that if you had like multiple fingers trained. Then when you put different fingers on, the proper one would highlight. Well, it's also sneaking another sample from you. We can use that Ah. in order to just overload it with samples. So that's how if you have multiple samples on there, it says, oh, it highlights the one that you're using. So it says, ah, yeah, I recognize that. I recognize that. But it's at the same time recording more data points. Very, very sneaky. Actually, in in a good way. Yes. And and. Unfortunately, they don't tell anybody that because it would be oh, nice if yeah. that was somehow noted. Oh, if you'd like to give us more samples, how did you find this? Will... You just by chance? Yeah, and then I and then I just so, so and I it raised the question: Is this training? Hmm. Right. And then I I worked out a way of verifying that in fact I am training at that point, and it never gets tired. So our and, previous recommendation was to. Use all of the possible fingers, but do it with the same finger so that you give it more data sets for that same finger. But this would be a superior way to do it. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. you, you have you have somewhere there's a geometric model of your of, of an individual finger's print. It's we don't know anything about the way they've built it, but it's doing some sort of, you know, recognition and 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 feature extraction and it builds a feature map. And what you'd like for greater reliability is two things. You'd like that the feature map for the region you use typically to like have all the noise removed and to find all the relevant features that are available. And so you get that just by giving it more chances to read. And also, for example, under different conditions, when it's colder, when it's drier, when it's more humid and so forth. So this allows you to just keep going back anytime you want to and give it some more samples. But the second thing you'd like to do is to expand the size of the feature map so so it does incorporate out further out the end of your thumb and around both sides and maybe back further just so that so that when you put your thumb down you don't have to be as as careful about giving it exactly the same spot on your thumb and and so so this allows you to to deliberately expand the feature map by just sort of walking the map in you know out to the periphery of your thumb and it'll follow you as long as it still recognizes it. It'll it'll say, "Oh, look! I got eighty percent of what I really have already seen, and here's an extra twenty percent slice that I'm going to now, you know, extend the feature map out in order to incorporate." And you know, you can play with it, and it all works. You have discovered. So I'm. You got to call the call the media. Alert the media. Nobody knows this. This is great <laughs> stuff. That's a what a discovery. Yeah, every so often we come up with new stuff wow. on this podcast. All right. Well, I, I wish I'd known about this uh, a few minutes ago on MacBreak Weekly. I would have told everybody, but I'll tell them next week and give you credit. Yeah. 
That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So thanks to Simon uh, Zarafa, our, our friend and contributor in, uh, in Wales. Um, he found two more new samples of CryptoLocker, which are, well, they're very different. Clearly CryptoLocker, they're one-third the size. CryptoLocker used to be the samples I was already hosting on the malware page at GRC for people who wanted to experiment. They were on the order of 900K, as I remember. These are, um, I think there was 900, and these are like 300K. So it's interesting that they're that much smaller. I don't know if they're just, if they've just run it through a compressor or what's going on, but they are new samples. They are the real CryptoLocker, and they are very poorly detected by any AV right now. So if, if we've got people, I know that, that my samples that I was offering have been very popular. It just, it's grc.com slash malware, and you can add .htm if you want. Um, and so I've, I've posted those a few days ago, and I wanted to notify people that they are there because I know that we've got people in, for example, in, in corporate infrastructures and, and IT that we're using those to make sure that, that, that whatever AV tools they're using are detecting those, or if not, you know, see about making that happen. And it, right, I think, for example, when I posted this, one of them was only detected by six out of 40 different AV tools. So, you know, way back down at the bottom again. And I remember last week, Leo, you were noting that CryptoLocker, the old CryptoLocker was now being seen by all of them. So, you know, it was, you know, it was being blocked by everybody. Yeah, that's kind of how it happens, right? And then they, they modify it. And- it's, yes. And, th- and, and that is the problem is that it's not the, it's not the, the specific characteristics necessarily, but just unfortunately signatures that, that are being used. And, and, and as soon as the malware guys see that they're being blocked, they are able to, you know, engineer around it. I mean, this is the problem we still have that unfortunately our model is block what's bad rather than known what's run good. Someday, at some point, that's where we're probably going to end up being. You know, and, and I've used the example a of white, firewalls. A whitelist instead of a blacklist. Exactly. Yeah. And to some degree, you know, the iOS store is a, you know, is, is a curated application store. Things, you know, we see examples of, of stuff getting, you know, sneaking by. There were stories last week we didn't cover because it wasn't really too much on topic. But it was, what was it? It was um, people were, existing apps were being sold to other companies that were then using them to embed ads in them and so that the the i think it was in the android store yeah. they would update the app and now so suddenly it became like wait a minute it was, it's, it's sort of like it's chrome plugins a, it's like letting a domain go bad and now it's turned into you right. know a, just a junky search engine it's kind of domain. worse than that because what happens is if a chrome plugin becomes successful the bad guys come along and offer the developer uh you know money to buy it uh. and the problem is that google does not once you have got a Chrome uh, plugin on the Appro- store, approved. they right. don't then check again. And so uh, you can then push updates to this Chrome plugin at will, including, yep. you know, whatever you want, malware. Or <laughs> I think maybe I should have covered that last week. Should have looked at it it's, more closely. It's pretty nasty. Week. Yeah. it's yeah. And I think Google needs to respond to it, frankly. Yeah. So I said without evidence last week, I made the comment that the NSA's phone metadata collection was ineffective. Um, I 
was hearing that from the various discussions that I follow, but I didn't have any specific evidence. Well, on Thursday, two days after the podcast, the 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 government's review panel that was looking at all this finally issued their statement. They warned that uh, the National Security Agency's daily collection of Americans' phone records is illegal, in their opinion. And, of course, you know, judges have been going back and forth on this so far and recommended that President Obama abandon the program and destroy the hundreds of millions of phone records already collected. Quoting from their report, they said, in addition to concluding that the daily collection of phone records is illegal, the board also determined that the practice was ineffective. Quote, we have not identified a single instance involving a threat to the United States in which the program made a concrete difference in the outcome of a counterterrorism investigation. And added, we are aware of no instance in which the program directly contributed to the discovery of a previously unknown terrorist plot or the disruption of a terrorist attack. So uh, it said the NSA should instead seek individual records relevant to terror cases directly from phone service providers under existing laws. And of course, that's my only so my only suggestion for someone that would be effective is as I said last week, we just we require that that the carriers maintain records if they want the privilege of having access to, you know, FCC allotted bandwidth and and common carrier status. Then what comes with that is the obligation to maintain metadata records and then require, you know, individual requests. And I did note also, uh, I think it was Verizon that was that finally published the number <laughs> of requests that they had entertained. Oh, Lord. It was like 370,000 requests in a year. So, you know, that's, what, a 1,000 a day about. So it's like, yikes. But still, you know, arguably, I mean, if maybe what that would do is raise the cost of performing this collection to the point where, you know, if it's really not generating any value they they would just stop bothering because it's like well okay but you know we're 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 having to jump through uh <coughs> excuse me <coughs> bigger hoops now so you know we'll just abandon doing it because it's not providing any value and the slide you referred to the nsa slide that um was just revealed was a another one of these wacky named projects. This one, Golden Nugget. And uh, everybody picked up on the news. TechCrunch's headline was, NSA may want mobile data, including info from Angry Birds and <sighs> Maps. Yeah. And, of course, you know, Rovio, the, the, the publisher of Angry Birds, vigorously denied cooperating with the NSA. And I'm sure they're not. It, it very much looks like we now understand that this is all, you know, extrinsic acquisition of data on the Internet. And, and as I've said, the NSA is full of smart people. If it can be done and they want it yeah. and – you know, and and they've got the budget for it. It will be done, and so you know they're just doing everything they can. And so you know they've they've got smart guys sitting around thinking, well, what about social 
you know, social networking apps. And, you know, well, in fact, that that's our next story is that the Facebook update, this is not NSA related and as long as the NSA can't get their hands on it, but Facebook's update to Android now requires permission to access all of your text messages. Please. I know. Um, a screen was was posted in the in the story that first brought this to light, and under app permissions, it's that uh, that that comes up when you when the when the Facebook app updates. It says Facebook needs access to additional permissions, uh, and then it lists them. And under your messages, it says new in all caps. Read your text messages, parens, SMS, or MMS. And down further, it sort of scrolls off the bottom, but under your personal information, also new, this was similar, dis- similarly disturbing. It says add or modify calendar events and send emails to guests without owner's knowledge. Read calendar events plus confidential information Read your own contact card, modify your contacts, read call log, read your contacts, write your contacts, write call log. And then it kind of it keeps going, but scrolls off. And I'm looking at that going, oh, my Lord. Now, so so note that here's certainly equivalent plumbing of personal information that a commercial enterprise is doing that echoes what the NSA is doing. So, you know, and and my point is it's been noted that, you know, yes, we're all up in arms over what the NSA is doing, but in fact, we're giving permission to to corporations to do, you know, very much the same sort of um aggregation and 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 social engineering. Yeah, and it's usually a tit for tat thing. I mean, these are so. I mean, you see this all the time in these apps. Um, it's nice that uh, Android gives you the list of new permissions before you accept it, and you can read them. Yes. Um, well, and, and Android cannot, or, or Facebook cannot knock on your door and say that we think that you know maybe you're up to no good. We're going to take you. Yeah, they away. don't have guns. <laughs> they don't have tanks. They don't have. Black helicopters, but but the other thing is that the way it's set up, a lot of times um, you ask for one permission, you get a block of those, and all of those have to be disclosed. That's part of the the way the API works. The other uh, issue is, and I what I suspect is this is Facebook in effect saying we want to add some new services, or we want Facebook Messenger to use text messaging in the in that case, and well, and so these are things that are features that people presumably want. And you can always say no and not install it. I mean, that's the, right. There's an opt out, and um, it, it, although it is an all or nothing, and I mean, yeah, I wish it were more it, granular. It's not. Yes, yeah. it'd be nice if they had check. <clears throat> and we've discussed this before. If they had check boxes on the on the on the on the things they want right. access to, and if they explained to the user why they want it, there's there's no why we want this as part of that. It's you must consent to this laundry list of permissions so that we're going to have so that android the os will give us access to those aspects that are otherwise sandboxed from us right. 
And so first they don't tell you why, and then they don't allow you to say, well, I'll take this one and this one, but I'm not giving you this one. Yeah, I mean, that's troubling, too, because, uh, I mean, it's difficult for them to do, because if you say, yeah, I'd like this SMS feature, but you can't have this, the whole feature breaks. And so, and I also understand why they don't give you a lengthy explanation, at least on that page, uh, because nobody would want it and piss people off to say, I don't want to read all this, I just want to, you know, get out out of my, but they should somewhere, somewhere they should say, and if you want to know more about what we're up to, we have a page right. here to, that you can read that. I I, th- I agree that kind of disclosure would be very valuable. It should be required. Um, okay. Yeah. So center yourself, Leo. I'm on, sitting on my o- ball carefully here. O- over your ball. And <laughs> listeners, you know, when, when, when you hear the phrase Bluetooth LE, quote, just works pairing. When something is called It Just Works, this is where you're entirely uh, expected well, it, to have what we're, what we're now calling a Gibsonian reaction. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't pair at all, frankly. It just, it just works in the sense that if you have a Bluetooth LE app, it works. <laughs> There's no pairing at all. Well, there actually is. Oh, is there? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, I mean, it's they they went to some trouble. For example, uh, I found an interesting page at the uh, nih.gov site that says pairing comprises three phases. Now, now we should mention, Leo, your what you're referring to is the experience, and you're completely correct. That is, the experience is that it just works. Yeah, it's all invisible to you. And and we've discussed Bluetooth pairing. I've explained, you know, carefully exactly how it works and that and that, you know, there's there's the way it was originally designed was secure, except during a brief sort of theoretical window where if you really wanted security, you needed to go out into the middle of an empty parking lot somewhere so that you could see all the way you know, around yourself and knew that nobody was sniffing. The reason that's important is there are, for example, very powerful Bluetooth radios with long antennas on them. Steve's showing one right now. <laughs> you, which hugely extend the range at which Bluetooth will function. And, you know, the, the hackers know about that. So on this NIH.gov site, they say pairing comprises three phases. In the first phase, the two connected devices, now they're not actually connected yet, but want to be connected devices, announce their input-output capabilities. And, and based on these, they choose a suitable method for the second phase. The second phase has the purpose of generating what's called the short-term key, STK, which will be used in the third phase to secure the distribution of key material. In the second phase, the devices first agree on a temporary key, just TK, by means of the out-of-band, the pass-key entry, or the just works methods the out of band method uses out of band communication means now that could be nfc or it could be you know the 
typical Bluetooth style where some something with a screen shows you something, which you then enter into the other device. Now, of course, that requires that the that there's a screen on one side and a keyboard on the other, so that you're able you the human are able to to move the out of band information from one device to the other in a in a mode where no one eavesdropping can know what that out of band information is that's the point of it being out of band or for example nfc you know assuming that nfc requires you know near contact then that would be good you sort of tap these things together that that allows them to exchange the very short range secret which they then leverage into a longer range secret by going out of band um but that's expensive too so what ends up happening often is that just works is used so Continuing the NIH thing, they say the out-of-band method uses out-of-band communication means for the TK, that's the temporary key agreement. In the pass key entry method, the user passes six numeric digits. So that's also out-of-band, but it's sort of formally defined as six numeric digits. Now, okay, turns out that's not enough digits, as we'll see in a second, between TK uh as the TK, as the temporary key between the devices. When none of the first two methods can be used, I would have written either at that point, but that's all right. The just works method is employed. And this is where we have our Gibsonian reaction. It says, although it is not authenticated and it not, does not provide protection against man-in-the-middle attacks, based on the TK... And on random values generated by each pairing device, the STK is then obtained by both devices, which leads to the end of the second phase. So they just sort of gloss over that minor problem with just works pairing, meant, you know, correctly noting that it provides no protection against man-in-the-middle attacks. It turns out that it's worse than that because a man-in-the-middle typically means you are intercepting that is you are that there's it's that they, they mentioned it's not authenticated well that's true and the typical man in the middle attack uh, allows the person to insert themselves and to be if there's no authentication then they're able to they're able to establish communications against each of the other ends and the other ends each think they're talking to each other when, in fact, they're talking to the man in the middle. That's the vulnerability with no authentication. That's what, for example, SSL certificates prevent because the, the server that you're connecting to is authenticated and no man in the middle has the certificate that the actual web domain you know, and web server has. So it's the authentication aspect that prevents an active man in the middle from from splicing themselves in. It turns out this is subject to passive eavesdropping, which is where the real where the real concern comes in. So, um, um, I went then to Bluetooth.org to say to to look at like what do the actual Bluetooth guys who developed this say, and under association models 
where you're 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 associating the two endpoints. They say Bluetooth Smart, which is their formal name for the low energy technology, which turns out to not be so smart, uses three association models referred to as just works, out of band, and pass key entry, as we just learned. Bluetooth low energy technology does not have an equivalent of numeric comparison. Each of these association models is similar to secure simple pairing with the following exception. Just works and pass key entry do not provide any passive eavesdropping protection. This is because secure simple pairing uses, and here it is, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman. That's, you know, the good way to do this kind of key agreement. That is so, so full strength, real Bluetooth, you, the, the, the secure simple pairing uses elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman key agreement. Well, that's good. Whereas, yes. Whereas Bluetooth smart, which we now need to put in air quotes, <laughs> does not. The use of each association model is based on the I.O. capabilities of the devices in a similar manner as manner as secure simple pairing. So they sort of gloss over that at this point, but they do note that for whatever reason, they didn't build elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman into Bluetooth low energy. Maybe they were just that, you know, their their target was really, really, really low cost. And we know that these Bluetooth LE things are really, really, really low cost. So finally, we get to the guy that cracked it. Um, so, and this is actually not even new. This is um, nearly two years old, I think, that this was done. But somehow it just sort of escaped attention. So Mike Ryan put, to, put together a paper titled Bluetooth, with low energy comes low security. And after laying down a foundation of, of like all of this, and he, he built a proof of concept system based on a standard, um, essentially sort of a software radio style Bluetooth dongle, a USB dongle. And so he says, be in his paper down on paragraph or section six, says, BTLE, Bluetooth Low Energy, features encryption and in-band key exchange as opposed to out-of-band, which we were talking about, where, you, where it's, you, 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 you deliberately go out-of-band so that somebody who is eavesdropping in-band that is able to capture the packets that are being exchanged can't see what's happening outside of that band, out out of band. But BTLE features, as Mike writes, encryption and in-band key exchange. Rather than relying on a well-established key exchange protocol, such as one based on elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, which, by the way, for example, is what um, SSL and TLS now is using and and made it ephemeral so that there you're always renegotiating keys because it's it's easy to do that now and that's where we get our perfect forward secrecy so they don't have to worry about 
anyone capturing certificates and being able to decrypt communications in the future that were that that were stored rather than that he says the bluetooth sig which is you know the the formal definition guys invented their own key exchange protocol so this is where we we, we go to yes we never learn these lessons <laughs> we 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 have perfectly good well established secure solutions but no we're going to invent another one we're going to invent our own so mike says uh using the royal we we demonstrate that this key exchange protocol has fundamental weaknesses that undermine the privacy of communications against passive and he has in in italics for emphasis eavesdroppers meaning all you have to do is capture the packets. We note that the session encryption provided by Bluetooth Low Energy is known to be relatively secure. BTLE uses AESCCM. Now, now he's talking about session encryption, not establishment. He says, um, against which there are no known practical attacks. So that is to say, once you get your your a secure key agreed to, then the session is well encrypted. The problem is, how do you establish that initial key? He says, our attack targets the key exchange rather than the encryption itself. Our technique is similar in principle to, and he quotes a couple, in which an offline brute force attack is mounted to recover a secret value when all other values are transmitted over the air. And that is the case here. So he says, before establishing an encrypted session, a master and slave must establish a shared secret known as a long-term key. Under typical operation, a master and slave establish a long-term key once and then reuse it for future sessions. Otherwise, the master and slave establish a long-term key through a key exchange protocol. And finally, he says, the key exchange protocol begins by selecting a temporary key, a 128-bit AES key, whose value depends on pairing mode. The master and slave use this value to calculate a so-called confirm value. Aside from the temporary key, all values used to calculate the confirm are exchanged in plain text over the air. The confirm value itself is also exchanged over the air in plain text. And this is the problem with the protocol. Mike says, we exploit the fact that all values except the temporary key are publicly known in order to brute force the temporary key. As noted, the temporary key value depends on pairing mode. Three pairing modes are defined, just works, a six-digit pin, and out of band. The temporary key is as follows. For just works, <laughs> it is zero. <laughs> it's nothing. It's null. For um, the six-digit pin, 
a value between zero and nine 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 padded to 128 bits. So that's where they get this 128-bit key is it is just literally the six-digit pin padded out to that bit length. And then if you have out-of-band exchange, for example, we were talking about near field, you would use that to exchange a true strong 128-bit value. So that's going to be super safe. The problem is if you use a six-digit pin, well, then you've got a value between zero and and essentially a million, 999999. But if you're just in just works mode, then they don't even try. It's just zero. So he says, finishing this, he says, we use a simplistic brute force algorithm to guess the temporary key. We calculate the confirm for every possible TK value between zero and 999999. If the master and slave used just works or a six-digit pin, we will quickly find the proper temporary key whose confirm matches the value exchanged over the air. So essentially, the confirm is exchanged in plain text, making this trivial to brute force. And he says, in practice, we find that a temporary key can be cracked in less than one second on a single core Intel i7 CPU. This figure could be improved by brute forcing in parallel and or using processor-specific AES extensions, none of which they either even bother with, making this an absolutely practical attack. Once that's done, then the, the temporary key is cracked, and you use that to leverage the agreement of the long-term key, meaning that the entire future interaction of those devices is then crackable. So, so what does this mean? Well, as we know, um, LE is often used for things you really don't, whose security you really don't care about, like, you know, temperature sensors or all those little tracking badges that people are coming up with now. You know, they're, they're, or, or iBeacon, for example, Apple's, Apple's iBeacon. It isn't actually exchanging any valuable data over that link. It's only saying, I'm here, or, you know, I'm a, you know, pair of red shoes, you know, <laughs> who knows? It's just, you know, it's arguably not very important. The problem is that this is the way these things start. So, for example, that interesting coin credit card is also using Bluetooth low energy. And the question is, did they do, do they do a full 128-bit temporary key or are they displaying, and I'm afraid they probably are, a six-digit pin? And now we know that if, if you were ever passively recording the traffic during the pairing of that card, the, the coin card using Bluetooth LE, where you could argue, in fact, there is valuable information now being exchanged, and they use 
for you know user convenience, a six-digit PIN, that communication can be completely cracked. So the concern here is that that we're going to get we're, we're going to start seeing applications using Bluetooth LE or Bluetooth Smart, which isn't very, where where unfortunately for user convenience, um, they've sacrificed you know the the, the full strength. 128-bit key exchange, and it turns out it's possible due to the fact that they did not use um, good Diffie-Hellman elliptic curve encryption. They just used a you know their own protocol where everything is in the clear, and a six-digit PIN um, can be cracked in under a second easily and much more quickly if you you know develop some software to do so. So, listeners, beware. Um, now, but it doesn't have to use this uh, uh, less secure system. There are three systems, and, and some are more secure, right? Um, there are, there are, there are, there, there, there's, there's one system which gets its security from exchanging a full 128-bit key. And that's secure. And that's secure. But, but that requires that... You you actually arrange to exchange a 128 bit right, key. Right. The what the problem is that's inconvenient. Or for example, if if, <clears throat> if, if, if it uses near field technology, then it's trivial to to generate a random 128 bit key on one side and give it to the other, and then that will be out of band. But but the problem is that we're all you know everyone's trying to minimize expenses. And I'll, you know, I'm signed up for coin. So I will find out how they, how you do the coin pairing. Um, the problem is coin uses Bluetooth LE. We know that. And absent high security out of band, you are reduced to using method number two or one, which is either zero, a, a key value of zero, which you could instantly verify or you you do a a brute force attack and you're going to guess the pin um in less than a second so um the problem is it, it's like yes you could pair securely and if you pair again where you're absolutely sure no eavesdropper eavesdroppers can intercept your communications then you're secure also once you've established your 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 pairing then you've agreed on a secure key, and that's never exchanged in plain text. But it's that that first instance of pairing that, unfortunately, Bluetooth LE is very vulnerable, much more so than regular Bluetooth, because regular Bluetooth uses strong a strong cipher. It must it must have been that they said we can't afford the cost. To, to do elliptic curve crypto, you know, in a in a temperature sensor that you're going to stick on the wall. We want we want Bluetooth well, LE to yeah. have a wide and who cares application. If what they know what temperature I'm, I have. Precisely. I, I guess the response. My response to this would be that uh, uh, it may be it may be cost, but I think it also may be looking at how people use Bluetooth. It's been such a pain to pair with Bluetooth that almost every device now just says it's zero 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 zero. They don't attempt, they, even though the security is possible, they don't attempt it. And that's become de facto how you pair stuff. It's, yes. it's rare in, that I have to use a number. And when I do, I'm pissed off. By my car, <laughs> I have to. And, and I don't care 
oh, my God, somebody might actually add their phone to my car's list of accepted phones is not an issue for me. So uh, I, I think in a lot of the times we use Bluetooth, as with, you know, a thermostat, it's probably not an issue. It's a big issue Correct. if Apple uses Bluetooth LE for its payments system because they don't have NFC on, on Apple. Right. Um, or coin, as you used as an example. Of course, I didn't buy a coin. I thought it was stupid from the beginning. Um, yeah. For many well, and, reasons. And, uh, I do too, but I just yeah, need yeah, to, yeah, I got I got to take my I have to take that apart. <laughs> you have to. Uh, <laughs> um, so I would guess that this that the people who did you know design this recognize that there are lots of situations where zero security is appropriate, and it's going to make everybody happy. You know, I use Bluetooth LE for my little slot car set, that Anki that we played with. Uh, yeah, there's no reason yeah. I should worry about a man in the middle attack or on a remote control. It doesn't make yeah, it's not an issue. Yeah, they uh, TiVo Romeo uses Bluetooth now, and yeah. it's you know it's very convenient. You don't want to have to enter a four-digit code to pair your remote control with your TV. That's crazy. Yep, and it's funny because it, it comes up in in pairing mode, and the first time you put the batteries in and plug the TiVo in, they you know, and and you press any button on the remote control, they immediately find each other, do this exchange, you know, a just works exchange, and now they they know each other. Yeah. So I think that it makes sense. In fact, I think this is a sensible response uh, to have three levels of security. Or really, sound like more like two, effectively, good security and no security, uh, right. and uh, and then count on implementations to choose the right thing. And by the way, you could use a QR code if you didn't have NFC. So it's conceivable that Apple an iPhone might might pass this out of band. Ah, it's a very good point. They, yeah. For example, the the coin folks could print. A, a static right. QR code of a, ra a random QR code on the back right. or on a sticker. So it's on the sticker. You, you, you scan it once and you peel the sticker off so that nobody else can right. uh, and, and hide the sticker somewhere safe. Uh, the places I've used Bluetooth LE pairing to a scale, pairing to my slot cars, it's been great. Because no, yep. it doesn't look like there's any pairing going on at all. In effect, it sounds like what they're doing is what we would do manually, which is zero, 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 zero. <laughs> and we just yep. eliminate that whole process. Well, and, that, and that's what just works pairing is. Yeah, it, it, yeah. is it is li literally zero. all zeros. Yeah. And, and so it, you can instantly crack the, their attempted encryption. The problem is, in my, cons my concern is, there's this, uh, there, there's this, there's this presumption that there was in t attempted encryption. And so I just right. wanted our listeners to know for now and forever that that's useless and don't assume you're being protected. Right. And, and, and Bluetooth LE is, I mean, it's wonderful. Um, I learned a little bit more about it. For example, I was always sort of curious, how could you have Bluetooth? Because I've always thought of it as being a, a static association. That is, that it had to be a powered up link. Right. It turns out that it's not the case. That, you know, the, the little TiVo remote controller was holding up a second ago. When you press the button, it sends off a little Bluetooth burst. So they've managed to get this thing so that it's able, the, the, the radios come up, they find each other, they handshake, they link, they exchange their message, and they shut down again. Which clever? is, you know, just it's like nice. an IR burst does. It's yeah. fabulous. So the real, I would say the real takeaway on this is uh, on things where you do want it to be secure, you should ask, how is the pairing happening? And uh, and you're and you're not using the uh, the easy one. You're using the secure Correct. one, right? And we will it's implementation. How, it's up to the implementer to do it right. We, we will find out how coin pairs. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, if uh, if Ryan Seacrest ever sends me my keyboard, 
which you know is that supposed to be LE? In a, yeah, uh, yeah, it's Bluetooth LE. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so the question will be, you know, I, I mean, there again, I'm sure it just will automatically find my phone, and they'll be they'll be happy. Yeah. Um, following up a little bit on pre-check. TSA pre-check because so many this has captivated the interest of our audience because you know people think wow I'd like to have that um, I did receive the day after the podcast last week so that is to say exactly one week after my TSA pre-check appointment I received a letter from the happy uh, you know <laughs> pre people and I what I received was my eight-digit known traveler number. So that's what I have now. I have a good-for-five-years known traveler number, and I presume when I am in the future making reservations on airlines, there will be a, somewhere I can put in my known traveler number, and then I'll get my boarding pass. We'll say TSA Pre. Um, one of our listeners, Martin Ruby, commented. He said, Steve, I've been a TSA Pre-flyer since the days when it was a test, there are two ways to get TSA pre. The first is the way you did by applying for it in for by applying for it. The second is by being an airline frequent flyer. If your airline participates, um, if your airline participates and is TSA pre, they can submit you your information to the TSA to the TSA vouching for you as a known traveler on that airline. The difference between the two is when you apply to the TSA, it's good on any airline that participates in the TSA program. And if it's um, by the airline submitting your information, I, I should have edited this better. I says, but, but if it's by the airline submitting your information, he says it's only valid on that airline. Then he says, I'm a proud owner of Spinrite since the days of Aussie Pug. <laughs> that was, that's an acronym I haven't seen for a while. Orange County IPM PC Users Group. I heard you talking about user groups, by the way, Leo, in the earlier in MacBreak Weekly. And uh, yes, those were fun times back then. <laughs> um, when he says, when you would come and present, and he says, I've used Spinrite many times to fix drive issues. Thank you for a great podcast and a fantastic product, Martin. And then the the one that I got a kick out of looking through the mailbag to, uh, this morning to put together our Q and A was someone who said TSA prescreen Steve, it's almost certain you have a file and a set of agents assigned to you. Of course, they don't need to interview you. The file probably says smart guy, mostly harmless. <laughs> Mostly smart, harmless, I like it. <laughs> smart guy, mostly harmless, best not to annoy him. <laughs> and never say it just works, because he'll so I, get you. Yeah, don't just tell me, oh, oh, yeah, the key agreement, oh, don't worry, but it just works. <laughs> so, two cool security sites. Leo, you're going to want to bring this one up. All right. Um How's my SSL.com? H O W S M Y S S L.com. Type it in quickly before we bring the site down. Oh, and there it is. Um, so we're seeing on your screen your SSL client is improvable. I assume you're using Safari. Uh, Safari yeah. Because, in fact, in my notes, Safari says it's improvable. Um, 
Firefox. Your SSL client is bad. So first of all, back off a little bit, or I'll back off a bit. What this is doing is something I actually I started to do for GRC, but there were I had other priorities, and everyone will agree. So I thought, well, okay, I'll either leave, leave that to somebody else or do it later, and it's been left to somebody else. How's my SSL.com? What this does is it pub it creates a web page based on the details of the initial SSL handshake packet. Remember from our discussions of this that the first thing that happens when your browser connects to a web server is that it 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 establishes a TCP connection through the three-way handshake. Then the first packet is a is a packet saying, I want to bring up an SSL tunnel. Here's all here's my SSL versions and my cipher suites. These are all the cipher suites that I know about. So what this site simply does is publish, essentially make it very human readable, publish the details of what the your client browser is offering. So if this is sort of the reverse of the SSL Labs test. SSL Labs will test the server on the other end of your browser connection. This one checks your browser. So Firefox, it says, is bad. Um, I don't think the people at Mozilla will appreciate that very much. Um, and I don't really know that I really agree either. Um, Firefox gets a bad because they support TLS 1.1, not 1.2. It's like, uh, okay, well, yes, there is a 1.2, but 1.1 is fine. But it really upsets this site because um, listed among the cipher suites way down at the bottom but still there is a is a suite that they don't like they it's the it's ssl rsa fips with triple des ede cbc sha so you know in the parlance of cipher suites it's it's chosen a set of of cryptography, which is like, eh, okay, so it's not super spiffy. They said this cipher was meant to die with SSL three point <laughs> <laughs> with SSL three and is of unknown safety. Well, yes, it's not of known unsafety. It's it's of and it's not actually safety. Of, it's not actually <laughs> even unknown safety. It's it's like okay, triple des. That's like the Edsel. But still, it's, you know, it's okay. So anyway, Firefox gets a bad. Um, now, the reason this is not such, the reason this, the only way this could be a concern is if you, it, I guess it would be a, a Cypher Suite downgrade attack where a man in the middle saw all of those going off to a server and removed all but that one. And then the server also supported that and then grumbled and said, okay, fine, we'll use that. Well, even then we don't know there's a problem because this, this is not of known unsecurity. It's just that unfortunately, how's my SSL site? You know, it's in the business of being critical. And so they said, okay, we don't like, we don't like this suite any longer. Opera got 
SSL client is bad, the latest version of Opera. And we know that Opera is very secure, but they only support TLS version 1.0. And they don't support TLS session tickets. Session tickets are are the TLS version of of caching. We've talked about SSL caching, where after performing the expensive public key encryption, you 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 do essentially you resume a session on subsequent connections by saying, "Hey, here's my session ID from the prior session. If this is still in your cache server, then let's just re you know re-establish our our agreed upon." Crypto, uh, crypto material, and that's very effective. Um, session tickets is the way is the terminology and the way that's being done for TLS, and Opera doesn't support it. Neither does IE11. Um, I got I got a better grade on IE11. It says your SSL client is improvable, so it's not bad as is Firefox and Opera. It's improvable. It's like okay, well they are they're all improvable. But so they they had to come up with a, a term for like okay not in the gutter but we're not really happy either. Um, IE eleven got improvable. Uh, Safari got improvable. The only thing that I have seen got I mean and this is the best they'll give. They'll begrudgingly say that Chrome is probably okay. It's like okay, <laughs> you know. So it gets a good on everything, and so it's probably okay. Probably okay. So anyway, I thought I knew that our listeners would get a kick out of how's H-O-W-S my S-S-L dot com. And I've seen other people asking me, Steve, what's going on with that TrueCrypt oh, yeah. audit? I meant to ask you about that last week when we talked about TrueCrypt. Yep. And there's a handy dandy site to answer the question, <laughs> is TrueCrypt audited yet dot com? And the answer is uh, not yet, um, but the project is getting good support. There is progress being made, and um, it's looking good. So all run together, one word is true. And by the way, it's T R U E, crypt. Don't drop the e. Is true crypt audited yet? Dot com, and. You know, the answer is not yet, but if you want to, you can make a shortcut or something to, to check in on that from time to time. And if the status changes, by all means, someone notice that and, and tweet me because I would love to know. Um, uh, I mentioned last week I was working on the, the Squirrel page to document the use of script, their S-script. Uh, that's Colin Percival's of Tar Snaps. So a memory hard password encryption technology uh, or password hashing is really the better term because it's not reversible. Um, I called it Enscript because we Enscript the password using essentially an iterative use of Script. I did that because Script, even if you give it a lot of memory, still is too fast. We we really want to penalize a bad guy who is who is doing password guessing. The only known attack on this is trying all possible passwords. And so while yes, what we what would really be good is if users chose, you know, pure entropy from like GRC's passwords page or something, 
Most people don't do that. And so the, the, the only thing I can think of, the only thing feasible is to make any wrong guess so painful that an attacker actually I, I think that squirrel is going to get a reputation instantly for not even being worth attacking because you know everyone's going to know you can only do one every well in the case of a of a statically stored password i'm proposing that you have to take 30 seconds to to encrypt this in order to export it um and you know they just won't bother but anyway the point is that what i ended up writing was much more of a tutorial than I started out to write, which I think would be of great interest to our listeners. That is, we have discussed, you know, password encryption and hashing and management in the past, like adding salt and storing the salt with the password and and adding iterations of a hash in order to to make it take longer. What I ended up writing on that page, and it's it's um grc.com slash sqrl slash scrypt um, and it's actually page 10 of 18 on the squirrel sort of subsite you can also just go in the menu so you know find squirrel under research and then it's page eight page number 10 is you know squirrel's use of script um, I ended up sort of taking the reader through the entire history of how passwords have been handled through time, which I think our listeners would probably enjoy reading. So I, I recommend it uh, for that. And I think you'll find it, it interesting also. And I, I expect this will end up be moving into common use. Oh, and I also mentioned that I've written software. It's there. There's a, a screenshot of this software. You can download my reference version of nscript which does this which is sort of a fun little benchmark uh you you can say run it for five seconds or run it for 30 seconds and then and then it will tell you how many iterations of script your system is fast enough to perform um and that really tells you a lot about the speed of your processor but mostly about your memory bandwidth the throughput to main memory because this is all about busting the caches in order to force main memory access that's something that gpus don't have you know like gpus can have a couple gigs on the on the graphics card but they they don't have high speed access to it they've got high speed access to local cache but this uses 16 megs of memory, forcing them to go outside of the cache down into main memory. And that's what lo levels the playing field and prevents the, like, the acceleration of this password hashing that we see, for example, famously in Bitcoin that just uses SHA-256. And so now there's ASICs, which are just screamingly fast at, at doing this. The whole goal was absolutely prevent that from being done with squirrels' passwords, and uh, I think we've achieved that. Uh, and just I had a short little shout-out from a James Cavanaugh, who's in Dresden, Germany. He said, I just wanted to say thanks for recovering my apparently dead drive's data when nothing else could. I tried so many other programs unsuccessfully, and after all of them, Spinrite's apparent ease of success really convinced me. What a difference. 
Also intuitive and easy to use. It does, it, he says, it just does the job. Great product. So, James, thanks for saying so. Well, we all agree with James. <laughs> hey, let's take a break. We do have questions for uh, Steve, and uh, we'll give you a chance to uh, talk about them. But before we do, I want to talk about protecting yourself online with ProXPN. You've heard Steve uh, talk, of course, about open VPN technology and how it can uh, be used to hide what you're doing in an open Wi-Fi access spot, for instance, or a, uh, um, you know, maybe your Internet service provider, anywhere somebody can see your Internet traffic emitting from your computer. So what you do is you set up an open VPN server, let's say at work. Uh, you surf from your laptop to the open VPN server, and everything between your laptop and the server is encrypted and, you know, invisible uh, to a, a snoop. And from there, it goes out in, in on, now in a clear, clear, clear text form uh, to the public Internet. Problem is setting up an open VPN server is non-trivial. It's something uh, Steve can do, not me. Fortunately, uh, we've got ProXPN. They'll do it for you. ProXPN is an open VPN provider that allows you to, and does some things you probably can't do, for instance, uh, uh, it allows you to surf to their open VPN servers in Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, New York City, Amsterdam. So when you emerge in the net, it, even though you're surfing from your home or your laptop or that coffee shop, it looks like you're coming out of those cities around the world, eliminating the issue of uh, geographic restrictions, for instance. It also means your internet service provider cannot enforce their six strikes their evil six strikes rules against you because they can't see what you're doing. It bypasses internet filtering. It bypasses blocked websites. It is a really nice solution. And I love these ProXPN folks because they have ProXPN Mobile now for Android and iOS that gives you OpenVPN on those platforms. In the past, you've had to use PPTP. Uh, so that's really nice. There's a, there's a world-class customer support. And it's very affordable. They have a free plan. If you go to proxpn.com, P-R-O-X-P-N.com slash uh, twit, you can read up all about it and find out about the the free uh, service. But I think you're going to want the paid service. And, and in, so in order to help you out with this, we're going to do a couple of things. First of all, you can get seven days of the paid service. Cancel any time in that first seven days, you'll pay nothing, get a full refund. But you can also use our offer code seven. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, SN20 to get 20% off for the lifetime of the account. The premium account, normally $10 a month, $75 a year. But when you, uh, when you get 20% off, you're, we're talking less than 5 bucks a month. Less than 5 bucks a month for ProXPN. That is a great deal. I want you to check it out. Go to proxpn.com slash twit. If you decide to sign up for the premium account, use the offer code SN20. By the way, you can pay with Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin. Proxpn.com slash twit. Use the internet the way it was meant to be, privately, with ProXPN. All right, Steve, I have in front of me, in my hand, questions from our listener-driven potpourri. Are you ready? You bet. Shall I fire away? Here we go. Uh, starting with Rick Lieb in Monison, PA. He wonders about a safe way to keep using XP after the April cutoff. Steve, I've watched and read every episode of Security Now since the beginning. I'm a Spinrite owner. Just upgraded both computers to Windows 7 Pro 64-bit from XP in order to keep using some software in XP that will not run on any other 
version, I'm using the XP mode virtual machine. This older software does not need to access the internet, by the way. Uh, once support stops, my plan is to disable networking in the virtual machine so it can't access the internet. I'm very careful about the media I hook to the computer. So, is this a reasonably safe thing to do? Rick Lieb, Monison, PA. Yeah, I, um, of course, I'm famously still using XP. And uh, I did note that April 8th, the last day of, of support, happens to fall on a Tuesday. Oh. So it couldn't couldn't be more Maybe appropriate. Maybe they'll patch, be a, patch Tuesday us one last time. A, it will be a pi- oh yeah that it will be the second Tuesday of April. That's probably also. why they do it. This, they're going to give you one more update and then that's it. <laughs> one final send off. Not they didn't want to do it on April Fools because that's you know right. that would be a problem. Right. Uh, so yes, you're right. The second Tuesday of the month, and it happens to be it will be a podcast day, so okay. that will be fitting. But but I would say disable it now well no i guess you still want to keep you want you want any updates that xp will get up for you know for the next couple of months that is by the way 69 days from now wow just for those of you who are counting um and and yes once xp is final in its final resting state then um you could disable its access to the internet i guess i guess what the problem would be if if you downloaded new X software that required XP mode that would then be able to leverage a problem with the XP virtual machine. What, what's not clear to me is what mischief it could get up to. Now, again, the bad guys are clever. Maybe they'll f- figure out some way to do something. But, for example, if it only if, – if you had the typical containment of a virtual machine, then – then you know it, it could mess with your virtual environment, but perhaps not anything you know outside of that. So you know, I have a feeling I'll be following in your footsteps because I'm sure I've got software. I'm sure Brief, you know, I'm still using the Brief text editor in a DOS box, and <laughs> I'm sure it's going to choke. Someone said that Eudora was still functioning under Windows Seven without any trouble. So although I don't think the 64-bit version. Of Windows 7, which I would want to use because I would want access to more memory. I don't think that's going to run, uh, you know, Eudora. But anyway, uh, we'll we'll find out. But certainly, yes, disabling networking would would isolate the virtual machine. You may want to turn it on from time to time, specifically to receive the security essentials updates because those are going to continue to flow uh, through sometime in 2015. So, like maybe one more year worth of those, um, just. You know, because um, and, and then, you know, definitely shut it down. Greg Kaiser uh, writes at Computer World that Microsoft is going to continue to update the malicious software removal tool, uh, MRT, through okay. July 14th, 2015. So another 15 months of MRT. That's the tool that normally operates completely silently. You can't invoke it uh, yes. if you know the command line, but normally it just runs in the background. Uh, and it's not exactly an antivirus, but it is a removal tool. And, of course, yeah, fact, all think- third-party antiviruses will see this as an opportunity. In fact, I'm surprised that some company hasn't step, stepped forward and said, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll lock you down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they don't have the source codes, but they, but at least they could, I don't know, offer well, some sort of service. And, 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 and remember that, that what we're going to be seeing are problems not unique to XP. They're, go- they're problems in Vista and Windows 7 and Windows 8 because of the common code base that goes all the way back, you know, actually back to NT. 
And so what Microsoft is saying, and this is what annoys me, I mean, I understand their need, but they're saying even though the same things we are fixing in Vista and 7 and 8 also affect XP, we're still not going to fix XP for you. We're just going to say no. So I was like, eh. and of course you wouldn't want to leave your machine on the net to download the monthly malicious software removal tool update, but they do offer it for download on the Microsoft site. I think he's smart. I think getting off the net after April eighth is probably the best thing to do. Well, and for example, most people get in, in, into trouble by surfing in a browser connected to the internet. Right. So I would say don't surf in your XP virtual machine. And as he said, the the software he needs to keep using, ooh, it's a database or, or something, has no need to access right. the internet anyway. Right. So, yeah. No, no problem. Edward in Daytona Beach wonders about memory hard encryption. The memory hard encryption technique, uh, any known hardware platforms that would wear out flash memory used as main memory... Uh, is there similar potential for where? It's an interesting question that really hadn't occurred to me. I had to think for a second, you know, is there any platform that uses Flash for main memory? Not that I and know. I'm sure the answer is no. Um, Flash, we we know that Flash fatigues because writing to Flash, as I've, I've, I have explained before, essentially forces... You uses high voltage to force electrons across an ins- a deliberately insulating ba- uh, boundary or barrier, and in the process fatigues that barrier. So, um, you know, all the flash that I'm aware of is 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 not scratch pad, um, and you you definitely, for example, don't want to set up a swap drive on flash memory because that'll burn it out too. But mostly it's that it's so slow. So nothing wants to use flash as main memory because, I mean, it really does take a lot of time in order to write to flash. So it's always used as, I mean, in every instance I can think of, and, and Leo, you it might be some low, low uh, speed uh, embedded tool that might use it but i can't it doesn't seem likely yeah yeah and and in any event nothing that you'd be running a squirrel client on so i think you're gonna be safe i think you're safe (laughs) michael in so the memory in other words the memory is not storage the memory is ram so yes and it is volatile by nature right uh michael in brisbane uh australia wonders about femto cell security uh steve i recently disconnected our voip and switched to just mobile phones at home however my wife has on call shifts and we had some black spots in the house where there was no mobile reception. The phone carrier, Optus, provides us with a femto cell. Uh, they call it a home zone, which I've attached to solve our home's coverage problems. The way a femto cell works, it connects to your internet uh, service and then is yep. in effect a little cell transmitter in your house. I've also received a new gateway modem router. I've seen some less than favorable write-ups on femto cells. I was wondering what your take is. Uh, since I really don't have the option of not having one. Love the show. Um, so I wanted to get your opinion just sort of from a, you know, a amazing how much stuff you know <laughs> kind of mode. But what I do know is that th- there, there's nothing fundamentally a problem with a femtocell. About four years ago, Vodafone in the UK had a complete mm, screw-up 
with their security. And I think that's what really sort of damaged the reputation is that they they basically I mean, as with as with, could happen with any technology, they just didn't do security correct. And it ended up being possible to 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 for bad guys to download their own firmware to like intercept updates to to update with malicious firmware to intercept calls and communications and that so that sort of scared people in general about the idea of of these little femtocell base stations but you know that's four years ago and as i mean sure anyone could make a mistake we've obviously we've been talking about how routers have so firmware which in some cases are is, is open and created a backdoor listening to the internet so mistakes happen but fundamentally there there's really no problem with femtocell um you know base stations from a from a security standpoint you know i um you you would know this aren't uh, aren't modern cell phones cdma and gsm encrypted uh yes from your phone, that that transmission is, I don't know how well encrypted, but it's encrypted from your phone to the base unit, right? Correct. There, There is, there. it's two things. It's encryption and and spectrum. Spread spectrum. They're, they're moving Ex- around it, a lot. Yeah. Exactly. So you only so get a little chunk it, at a time on yes. a given and frequency. So yeah. Yes. And so it's very difficult for for the amateur to intercept that. We, we so that technology know, would be the same from you to your femtocell. Exactly correct. the same because the phone doesn't know. Now I yes, don't know. Correct. Once it gets on the internet, does it remain encrypted? It's obviously no longer spread spectrum, right? And 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 there again, I'm sure it's not in the clear. There, I'm yeah. sure it, it brings up a an, an, an encrypted tunnel and you know and yeah. does the right thing, does what you would hope. I be I but as we know, <laughs> uh-huh. one, one should never assume. Right. Yeah, it might be just works. I wonder if it just works uh, when you plug it in. Just works. Oh, yes, no, I'm, I'm teasing. There's really no reason to. to I'm sure because 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 I did do a little bit of browsing and I see nothing in, like for, right. except for, for like four years ago where there have been problems and we would we would know if there were like you know contemporary femto cell security problems. I think it's safe it just, to say it's probably as secure as your cell phone communications are anyway. Yes. Yes. It's no less secure. Yes. And the weak link is going to be, as, as you spotted, Leo, the weak link is going to be that first radio gap between your phone and, and the base station. And boy, you'd rather have it be a 10-foot link yeah, in your than house. a 10-mile yeah. link. Yeah, exactly. John Kirby, Davis, California, says, I miss Hamachi. We all miss Hamachi. Yeah. Logman's not free anymore. They're and we don't mean it. the tuna. No. We don't mean the tuna. Well, we, yeah, because we get plenty of that. Actually, Steve does not. He no longer eats no. tuna. No. As you may have heard, Logmein is discontinuing the free version. That's fine. They have the right to do that. Unfortunately, I use the free version because it passes through all the security hoops I'm looking for. But I also depend on it for the central hub aspect so I can connect my home computer even as its IP address changes. It's nice to be able to connect with my mom's or my sister's computers a couple of times a year to make sure everything's still up to snuff. And he uses it for that. So this brings me to a request for a Security Now show, which is remote desktop clients which work with dynamic IP addresses. I've used VNC, Microsoft's remote desktop client, many years ago. But both of these required a known IP address. I also realize that GoToAssist, GoToMyPC is a show sponsor, so I cannot ignore them, although I have no experience with them, only because I haven't needed to yet. I can answer that question. They use a NAT traversal. They're using a third party, so... 
it is not necessary to have a fixed IP address. In fact, I would guess in a lot of cases, well, I'll let you answer. I know this will not be a quick five-minute Q&A, as each of these solutions will undoubtedly need some background research before you can give any formal review. Thank you for the wonderfully entertaining and enlightening show. I look forward to it every week. John, for what it's worth, I'm staying with Log Me In. So I, when I saw this, I thought, wow, yes. I've, I saw so many tweets yeah. in the last few days, uh, people bemoaning the change that Log Me In made, uh, taking it, you know, essentially discontinuing their free service. And I think, as you say, Leo, or actually, as John said, it's their right to do what they want to with the service. Well, it and we had you it's this... hard to do this stuff for free, frankly. Well, yeah. And, and you know, they're a publicly traded company. They've got shareholders. I'm sure they're looking around for more revenue. It's like, OK, where can we get some more money? And it's like, well, you know, those freeloaders who are still using, you know, the, our version of Hamachi, it's time to cut them off. So... Um, and, and and no doubt, I mean, you know, John will be going from free to paid. So this is a perfect example of the log me in strategy functioning. Um, the the problem that any other solution will have, uh, as you mentioned, Leo, is is that first of all, many people's IPs change not often, typically. Unless they're they're always disconnecting and reconnecting their internet facing device, um, you know, like some uh, DSL systems are like actually disconnect completely and then get an IP when they essentially do the equivalent of of, of a DSL dial up. So there you're going to get very rapid IP change. But for example, I use. Uh, Sue, my uh, my bookkeeper and office manager, we use her IP as one of several factors of authentication for her access to GRC servers because you know a TCP connection can't spoof that. And so eh, maybe every three months or four months, she'll say, "Hey, I can't connect." And so I'll 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 get her IP from her email headers and you know connect to GRC and say oh, and just update that IP. And and then she has connectivity again, but that what that does is that shows me how infrequently her routers, typically you know technically dynamic but practically static IP changes. So in many cases you can you you could open ports through a router in order to allow in you know remote incoming access to a a remote desktop server, but the the beauty the, the beauty of Hamachi was that that they were operating a very robust NAT traversal server so that all of the Hamachi clients phoned out through their local networks behind routers to the central hub that and, and then you created an account with Hamachi. Then of course the other amazing thing at the time was he was using five dot IP addresses, which had never been allocated in the history of the internet. We weren't running out of IPs back then. I think it was his name was Dave, wasn't it? I remember we, we used to call him Hamachi Dave, uh, the guy who designed all of this. And so everybody would have a five dot IP of which there were 16 million. So there were enough of them for, for his network. And it was the NAT traversal that just sort of made this thing work. Um, but of course, he created a, a useful service and sold it to the log me in folks 
who initially didn't change it much and then began to change things. And you, you know, know, there's now, a moral here. It costs yes. money to do things. And I think this is a unique area. There's a lot of places freemium works. Um, it's very big in the App Store. We just saw from Apple's results, 92% of all Apple apps are freemium. That is free, but you pay for in-app purchases, for upgrades. Yep. It's how you make money. 90, yep. 92% of the revenue in the App Store, I misstated it, 92% of the revenue in the App Store comes from free apps within app purchases. So it's a very successful model. The problem is, I think, the people who use LogMeIn free and TeamViewer and, uh, are a, a, a certain class of geeks who just never pay and you just can't upgrade them and i'm yep. i would guess i'm not i have no inside information that lo what happened is log me and realized that 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 there are some people who are going to pay up but the people who are using the free service are going to keep using that forever free we cannot right. convert them and it's funny too because remember they did another stage in this uh evolution where it used to be that People could use could have uh, Hamachi or log me in, you know, ver version of Hamachi on servers, and then could network into those servers for like remote server maintenance. And one of the things that that log me in changed. This is like maybe what six months ago or so. Was nope, can't do that anymore. Yeah. You've got to be like log having logged in desktop session and be active in order to use it and so that that forced some set of of you know remote server admins yeah. yep move them up or they just said you know screw this i'm not gonna right. I'm, I'm not gonna you know go up that curve i always you know i always worry when something i really love is free because free is not sustainable forever people right. have to eat right well and you know my model is somewhat different there are I, I, I look at things GRC could do, which I would like to do, but which, you know, would like create a dependence of people on GRC. And I just I don't I'm not comfortable with that yeah, model. I yeah, don't want to I, I don't want to like, yeah. you know, we don't do that. it either. We don't do it either. I just. That's, right. You know. <laughs> right. So I do everything for free. And, and, and you have you one know, thing that pays and, you money. And spin right. Right. Pays the bills, right? And as long as uh, that works, which it apparently does, you're going to keep doing it. Yeah, I think so. If you don't want a third party, and the third party is the way to to like easily solve the router the, the router transversal the NAT transversal problem, then one thing you can do is you can use. Um, you know, one of the dying DNS services, so which most routers now support, where essentially you you get a DNS, a DNS string, a DNS machine name, which dynamically whose IP dynamically tracks the router's public IP. That way, you could install in your mother's and your sister's system a means of contacting a server. It, a, a desktop server behind your router, which would track your IP, so that link wouldn't break. Um, I think Dyn DNS. I know that there are paid versions of that, but I think there's still free versions too. Um, so you know, it requires some setup and configuration, but it, it, it would solve the problem. But um, I'm except for things like go to assist, go to my PC, 
uh, and similar services. I don't know of anything else. Well, there's TeamViewer. I think a lot of people use TeamViewer. Oh, yeah, great. And TeamViewer also. And that's free. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, see, I think TeamViewer might stick around because they charge so much for the paid version that they don't need to convert everybody. That it supports, it supports, <laughs> it supports this, right. this strata of people who will never give you money. Yep. Jonathan Rabkin, Dartmouth, New Hampshire, wonders about suspend-to-disk security. Actually, a couple of people do. I was wondering if when a computer suspends to disk, is that that's Hibernate, basically, right? Yes. Yeah, laptops primarily. You could remove the disk, take it out of the computer, scrape the RAM image in the swap partition as a way of accessing passwords and encryption keys. Moreover, I was wondering if that RAM image is overwritten on disk after the machine wakes up or whether eh, they just leave it around. Maybe you could get it later. And that ties into CZ in Washington, who wonders about Inception and the breaking whole disk encryption. He points to a link at breakandenter.org slash projects slash inception. He says it appears TrueCrypt, BitLocker, and File Vault are a good deal less secu- uh, useful. So what is this inception thing? Well, uh, Inception was interesting. First of all, it's a copyright violation, I'm sure. There's, that's oh, but this to- is where this is like freezing the, the RAM. Correct. Right. This, exactly. This, But one of the things this confirmed was a conjecture we made quite a while ago on this show, and that was that Thunderbolt was going to have the same problem as Firewire. And indeed it does. Because it uh, uses DMA, direct memory exactly, access. Exactly. It is essentially a, 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 a you know, direct port into your machine's running memory. So as we've talked about in the podcast before, if you can use a Firewire linked, I think uh, Inception supports Linux or FreeBSD machines. If you can use a Firewire um, linked uh, machine and the, it's up, it's powered on and running, um, even if it's in standby, uh, often the Firewire interface will still be live. You're able to you know, browse around through the memory. And there are tools available, forensic tools, which, are, which have been designed to, to interpret this, the binary hash of, of RAM and locate keys that are in the hash. Now, Jonathan's question about suspend the disk, I mean, oh, this is a big problem too. And in fact, for the first portion of its life, TrueCrypt did not offer encryption of the hibernation file, which was a known problem. That is, if, if, you, if you had whole disk encryption and you used TrueCrypt and hibernated, the hibernation file wasn't encrypted because it's, it takes just extra techno- technology and hooks, essentially, down into the OS and, and the kernel to be able to come out of encryption where the encrypted file is encrypted and decrypted in a in a safe way. I remember when they added that and it was like, oh, good, because, you know, that was something that was missing. But in, in, in answering Jonathan's question, yes, if you don't or if you're not explicitly performing whole disk encryption and that whole disk encryption includes the encryption of the hibernation file, then the, the, the hibernation file lives in the root directory of your boot drive, uh, and it's there all the time. So it's written to when you hibernate, and it is read from after you wake up and 
I'm not aware that it is deliberately scrubbed. I think it's just, you know, the peop, the the OS says, well, you know, the, the guy's up and running in memory anyway, so who cares if there's a, like a second copy of it sitting around? <laughs> and it would be unencrypted. It would just be it's a, just a memory dump. They don't process it, it in any way, right? It is an image, yes. Yeah, just a me- dump of memory. Um, yep. Hmm. So to get security there, you need to you need whole disk encryption. I, never, and I don't like hibernation. I never use it. It's slow. No. It doesn't. Yes. Either no. leave the computer I, on or reboot and load everything. Yeah, or, or just use standby and Stand remember that fine. you're in. Yes, remember yeah. that you're in standby. Yeah. Eric Foss, Bakersfield, California, has a question about mail store. Uh, I don't know how you got mail store home to work with Eudora, but I have hundreds of .mbx files, and clicking on each one ain't going to happen. I have most of my email back to 1997. Wow, so it would be nice to be able to search it. But, well, if you get a chance, I hope you'll explain how you used MailStore. MailStore was this program that allowed you to search all your old email, right? Yeah, actually, again, it was another popular recommendation of mine, or, you know, which followed a discovery week weekend before last. Okay, so I didn't go into it in more detail, but I got so much feedback from people who were like, oh, this is fabulous, blah, 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 um, that I thought I'd take a little bit, I'd talk about it a little bit more. First of all, I used the commercial version also, which, because I was experimenting. I mean, I thought maybe I was going to settle. I mean, I have settled on MailStore, but it turns out I was able to completely work with MailStore Home but not until I got things settled. I used the the mail store commercial version is three is free for 30 days. And I only needed it for one day. So what I did was I installed the commercial version, and it's actually two portions. It's a server that that runs in the background, and then the mail store client that runs in the foreground. Mail store home, the free version has some limitations. For example, you can only create you can only create three of one type of profile, as they call them, like 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 archiving three mailboxes. The server, the commercial version, has no limits at all. So, what I ended up doing was um, um, informing the. I, I installed the server version. And by the way, they can cohabitate at the same time. They were both living, the, the home version and the server version, both living on my system at the same time with no problem. And I actually did all of the importation of my many Eudora folders into the server version. And I, at one point, I had like 27 or 28 simultaneous folders being encrypted and indexed at the same time. And I, I it handled them with no trouble at all. Um once that I had that, I then exported it to a Microsoft Outlook PST file. Then, because that was the common cross cross version file format that they both supported, and then I used MailStore Home and imported that Microsoft PST file, and then re-indexed it in order to create a mail store home index. So I, I sort of came up with a, you know, a bit of a clue. Basically, I just wanted to do this once. For me, I had email going back, to, you know, a quarter million pieces of email nearly going back to 07. So I just needed to get it into mail store home once. And once that was done, then all of my incremental archiving is being done very happily 
under mail store home. Now, Eric has a slightly different problem because he says he's got hundreds of MBX files. So the solution there is that in Eudora, you're able to simply drop one folder onto another and it'll move them over. So I would say, you know, create a separate directory tree of all these MBX files. Use Eudora to very quickly consolidate them. You can just, you know, you can just, you know, select all your messages and drop them on a folder. Select all, drop them on a folder. Select all, drop them on a folder. That'll consolidate all of those mailbox files into one huge file and then just let either version of mail store, either home or the server, chew on that one MBX file uh, creating an index. So that's a way you can, again, you only have to do it once. And, and you might want to use server, though, because it, it, it will allow you to do 30 things at once. Actually, I think there's no 25 was, was a limit. <laughs> Um, in how many threads it will run at once. So I set it to the limit, 25. And But I gave it even more, and as soon as it finished with those, it it, it, it picked up on the other ones. So cool. it, it ended up working great. Yeah. John Siebold has a question about SpinWrite 6.1 versus SpinWrite 7. As a very long SpinWrite user, I think I originally bought version 2. I know I bought version 5 on a 5 and a quarter inch disc, and I've purchased multiple copies of Spinrite 6. I find it odd that you're talking about 6.1 and 6.2 rather than 7 or 8. From your discussions on security now, great podcast, this certainly seems like a major version upgrade, not an incremental release. Why did you call it 6.1? Okay, so um, I understand what John is saying, and part of me sort of agrees, but... Uh, um, I'm fine with the sales that I have of Spinrite. Um, I dislike companies that, you know, really leverage their users' upgrades a lot. Now, again, 10 years, <laughs> it would not be a lot. Um, but to me, this feels like the right thing to do. I am resisting adding features this is all about speed and compatibility, essentially. So to me, for a speed and compatibility change, that fe it feels right to do this. Also, we will be introducing 6.1 will run on a Mac. And so that will dramatically expand the, the, the you know, spin rights market additionally. So in that sense, it's, you know... It's a new version. It will open up a big new market for Spinrite. My plans for 7 is a complete rewrite. And so so I'm I'm and for, for me this creates a boundary, a kind of a clean boundary. The UI in Spinrite 6 is is set up to do what it does. It and it would just be a it would take too much time basically to to make it do a lot more. So I can if if I restrict six and six's future to to speeding it up and introducing it to all the hardware and to the USB keyboard and the Mac and so forth, that I can do in a short time. And so that's my goal. Get Squirrel finished, get back to six one, get that out, then tackle USB interfaces with six two, get that out. And and my point is that then can hold us while I work on 7. And 7 
is I start by rewriting the UI. Seven will do all the other things that people would like from Spinrite, like be file system aware, extract, do, do file recovery rather than than sector level recovery. So that, for example, if a drive is dying, it'll pull all the files off of the drive and note the areas that it has trouble, but skip those and get all the other files that it can, then come back and do data recovery on the files that, that, that wouldn't go. And, you know, recover a drive in an image format to a different drive rather than to the same drive. You know, all the kind of things that, yes, now that drives are commodity items, it makes sense to do. That's my target for Spinrite 7, but that's going to take a while. And I can't hold a new Spinrite back for 7. So that's why I decided do something basically that sort of catches Spinrite 6 up to today and that'll that'll effectively buy me time to do what I really want to do, which is seven. And that there'll be an upgrade fee for that, which I imagine people will be excited about because seven will, will go so much further than spin right six. That's quite an ambitious plan you got there, young Stevie. That's my plan. And meanwhile, <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 be doing podcasts every week. Yeah, holy cow! File recovery. Paul White. Writes to us from uh, 45 degrees, 25 minutes, 5.1312 seconds north, 122 degrees, 46 minutes, 30.5652 seconds west, which, by the way, is about Beaverton, Oregon. Had a thought about CryptoLocker. Listening to SN439, you said something about the way CryptoLocker works. It turned on a light bulb in my head. You said if one plugs a USB drive into an infected machine, on the next cycle, that drive would have its files encrypted. If one had two identical USB drives and connected one to the machine and allowed it to be encrypted, could the files on the two drives be compared and whoa, reverse engineered to reverse the encryption? Happy Spinrite owner, blah, 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 SN, best cast ever, blah, 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 Paul in Portland. And we know exactly where Paul is, by the way. Yeah, I actually see a picture of his house (laughs) when I put that in my maps. So, So, um, okay, so Paul, no. The good news is that won't allow CryptoLocker to be reverse engineered. And that's a good thing because if that did work, it would work with all other encryption. And that would be a bad thing because, you know... What you're describing is known, it's called the known plain text attack. And, you know, the, the classic example, for example, is the, and we talked about this when we were discussing crypto years ago, the, the, the Caesar cipher was a simple substitution cipher where you just, you know, you, you, you substituted letters for other letters. And so what came out looked like gobbledygook, unless you really looked at it closely, now, if you had the 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 un the, the decrypted version of an encrypted message with a simple substitution cipher, you could instantly create the the equivalence table that turns plain text into cipher text and back. So there, that, that 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 that's an example of a of a so-called known plain text attack. Now, of course, there are. That cipher, the Caesar cipher, is weak because even if you didn't have the plain text, you could do a frequency analysis. If you knew the 
the language that the plain text was written in and the and and the character occurrence frequency you could do a frequency analysis of the plain text and figure out what the characters were just by how often they appeared in the I'm sorry in the cipher text um but the ciphers that we use now that CryptoLocker uses, which is AES, uh, and that SSL uses, and that all of our hard, you know, our, our full disk encryption uses, and cloud encryption uses, everybody's using, are specifically immune to plain text attack. That's important because many of the things that we're encrypting have known plain text, like the beginnings of web pages have standard headers. The beginnings of files have standard file headers. There's a lot that is known. Um, and so if if there was a way to to map the 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 cipher text to the plain text that gave up any information about the key that was used, that would be a problem. And so one of the one of the very most important, characteristics of contemporary ciphers one of the first things people look at is does any information leak about what about the key that was used from in transiting between the the plain text and the cipher text and in in good ciphers all the ones we use the answer to that is a definitive no knowing what it was when it was not encrypted doesn't give you any information that's useful about the key. It's not reversible. That's what I would have said. Wayne, okay. in, <laughs> Wayne in Park City, Utah, wonders whether he's missing something. I listened to your episode 439 on the target problems. Am I missing something? Why isn't every authentication server or set of servers or server set or service to... <laughs> Why aren't they set to only, to only allow a few bad logins before both logging and alerting the attempt, then blocking additional logins for a few minutes? Thus, password guessing is not a viable technique, duh. Yet Windows Server doesn't set this as its default or even remind admins to change these defaults during an installation. Isn't there a downside or is there a downside to making these changes to the defaults? Shouldn't people just prevent that? What do you say, Steve Arino? So this is what I said was the – this is our last question of the day and is our teaser for next week's episode. Oh. Uh, the, the answer essentially is that while that would inarguably provide greater security, we also know that it would provide headaches for the support people because people would – who used to have like four or five common passwords – they would would not remember which one of their four or five common passwords they used. And so they would put a few in trying to guess. And then the thing would say, oh, sorry, you're out of guesses. Contact your administrator or, you know, wait some length of time or whatever. So unfortunately, today, these things are still wide open. Uh, there was a recent survey done of exactly what the industry's current Password policies are, and we're going to discuss that next week. Ah, very good, very good. All right, Steve Arino. Hey, one one other story. Do you ever have you ever heard of Eve Online? No. 
It's this seems like this would kind of intrigue you. It's a massively multiplayer online role playing game MMORPG where thousands of people engage in space battles with one another. They've they've got territory and this going on for ten years. It's a very popular game. My word! Yesterday they had the largest online war in its history. Four thousand players simultaneously in the same space battling each other because apparently a battle started neglected to pay its rent or protection money really to the anyway it's a very complicated uh, reason but unbelievable four thousand i wish i had video i'm looking uh to see if i can find it on twitch or somewhere but uh wow Wow. <laughs> and so it's it sounds like it's very much like what we did on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Where it, so 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 it it's an online starship battle simulation. Yeah. Well, except I mean if you look at it, it's it's very it's beautiful. You're really in it. This is a, a still from the the war. I mean, imagine with four thousand ships converging on oh, one another Lord. in a single system. That is pretty amazing. Wow. <laughs> Um, Steve is at grc.com. If he were doing this, he wouldn't have time to do all the other things he does for us, including not only this show, but also all the freebies he posts on his website. Shields up. We could You could still test your port 32764. If you go to bit.ly slash port 32764, you all should do that. Make sure your router is not vulnerable. The or now, you, now you can just put 32764 in Google, and the first link that comes up is mine. <laughs> That's Steve. You'll find him. He's he's closely associated with the number. Um, he also, I'm saying all of this is pro bono. The one thing he does that makes money is this spin right thing. So if you don't, you know, if you've got hard drives, you really ought to have it. It's the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. It's just fabulous. Uh, no, we, 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 we talk almost always about recovery because of course you know no one's gonna get it just because you know for what the heck but there are people who have purchased it and i thank them for just to say thanks for everything i'm doing and i would encourage them run spin right on your drives it will keep them from failing you know we we've heard testimonies from people who bought spin right to say thanks but but just left it on the shelf waiting for a hard drive problem and so it's like well you have it Run it because I mean it absolutely <laughs> does prevent hard drives from crashing. Yeah, absolutely get it, and don't be put off thinking, "Oh, I'm going to wait till version seven because I don't want to pay the upgrade fee." It's going to be a long time. Get version <laughs> six. <laughs> Steve's a very ambitious fellow, and he's a fast coder. I'm sure. Well, that's yeah, I, 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 that's true. There will be no benefit to waiting, <laughs> and everyone who gets who gets Spinrite six now does get six, six one. one and six right, two free. for free. Yeah. That's my problem. Seven. We're not talking this winter. Uh, no. <laughs> maybe next. Maybe sometime in this decade. Maybe. Uh, that one. That's if no more squirrels attack. <laughs> Uh, yes, Squirrel is also there. All the information about Squirrel. Somebody said, where does Steve put all his all the health and nutrition stuff he talks about? Is there a, is that written up anywhere? Yes, it is. GRC.com. Yeah. Also, 16 kilobit audio versions of this show. Uh, handwritten, human-written transcripts of everything he says available there. We have uh, yep. higher quality audio and video of the show as well on our site, twit.tv slash SN. Uh, you can also subscribe in your favorite netcast catcher, and it'll just come to you every week. Or watch us live. I think uh, I think more and more, uh, the, some of the fun of this is watching live. Uh, and you could do that by visiting us uh, on, uh, what is this, Tuesdays 
at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. I have what no day idea. Is I'm it? very confused because there's no schedule. <laughs> Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC on twit.tv. Before you buy, coming up next. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, my friend. See you next Talk time. to you next week. Bye-bye. And we will analyze the industry's current password policies. And it's not good yeah, news. Yeah, you know, I actually often wondered this. Why, why don't you just time out after three bad requests? Not yeah. good news. Yeah. Uh, although when that happens to me, I hate it. <laughs> exactly. Because I, I big thumbs and I make a mistake and then I got to wait. Exactly. Or I can't remember the password and I try all my regular ones and then I got to wait. Yeah. All right, Steve. See you next time. Thanks, buddy.